I'm Nick Terzo, and you are listening to The Radical. My guest this week represents one of those rare stories of someone who's been successful in a variety of roles. Grammy-nominated songwriter, corporate executive, and entrepreneur. He's written hits for artists such as Pink, Cher, Sting, John Legend, Jessica Simpson, and Celine Dion. His current venture encompasses a record label, artist management company, and branded entertainment agency. All this, and he remains an active force in advancing songwriters' rights. Multi-platinum songwriter Billy Mann joins me to discuss developing young artists and influencers in a TikTok world, his decades-long kinship with Pink, and, equally important, his remarkable efforts as a driving force for autism funding and research. Coming up, my conversation with Billy Mann. Hey, Billy, thank you for doing my show. I'm really grateful. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Uh, It's my pleasure. Um, You have a fascinating career because I think you've done about everything from, you know, (laughs) Look, the creative side, the executive side, the entrepreneur side. Um, So I think you have a view that's different than a lot of people's. It's not as myopic or one-dimensional. And your interest in young artists and how they develop, I think, is important. I think a lot of guys get to be our age and kind of get, I don't know, kind of get removed from that, which Mm. to me, that's still the thrill of it all. Um, Mm. And I think you share that. So um, so I kind of want to get into that. A little bit. Um, yeah, no, it's good. I, it's it's weird because if most people, their careers, I don't even think it's negative. I don't think people, their intention is to have a myopic point of view, but the industry tends to be like, oh, you're in this bucket. And there's a comfort level to that too. If you're a record executive you, and you're talking to someone, you say, oh, so-and-so is a manager or so-and-so is an executive or so-and-so is a songwriter or a producer or a publisher you know where they belong in just the way you compartmentalize the business you do on the day to day. And then when you're um, a little off-roading like I am, uh, you're you're able to approach it from a a different kind of perspective taking. And I think, uh, frankly, I don't think it's until I got a little older that I began to take proper advantage of those experiences in a way that was more objective and seeing, seeing situations through the eyes of other people instead of just through your own eyes, which is a, is a clearly a problem in the world, not just in our industry, but in general. So I, I, I feel lucky that I've had that perspective. That's a great perspective. Let's, um, well, let's just jump in kind of today where you are. I don't, you know, I don't want to do a timeline here um, that would bore the hell out of you because you've probably done that no, a million times. I, I, so. How do you explain some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the ground I've covered? <laughs> yeah. Well, we got to connect the dots of how you got yeah, to today. So we'll, we'll do that a bit. So, um, but you've got a, currently you have like a label, right? Um, you have something called proof of concept. Um, and uh do you do any more branded entertainment work? You work with influencers. We do a lot of branded. So my partner, Benton James and I, um, Benton and I worked together at um, my previous company, um, which was uh, Mancom Creative Partners and Green and Bloom Topline was the publishing arm. And we worked with a whole cast of other folks, um, different artists, writers. Liz Baylog was one of the executives that helped build the company with me and Benton joined many years ago. And um, Benton just has a superb perspective as not just his perspective um, as an A&R executive, but he's also one of those people that sees things before they're fully formed and can um, interact and engage with talent at their infancy and then identify based on his own instincts and see them through. So super Mario is an example of that, who was a janitor in a mental institution and now is like one of the biggest producers in hip hop. Um, or, uh, I mean, the list is, is pretty long. I won't bore you or your listeners with it, but, um, when Benton and I started thinking about 
what we wanted in this next chapter, which really took place, that ideation process was during the pandemic, where people had a bit of time to have an existential crisis and go, what do I want to be when I don't grow up? Um, Proof of concept was really, it's just an obvious articulation of what we have to do anyway, as music entrepreneurs, which is find things where maybe you don't have massive believers and then prove your point and prove that concept and then scale it. So that was really where that name came up with, where we came up with that name. And it's primarily around developing talent um, and using the digital environment as a means for doing it, both in terms of discovery and, and where our talent lives and then working across with a lot of brands on installations um, using music to further brand initiatives. So for example, um, you know, we did uh, an initiative for um, we're in this together um, and it was right before the election, there was a huge crisis and we needed to come up with a song. We did this in partnership with gray advertising and uh, we got Jasmine from the Hamilton cast, the original cast, and she sang this song and then um, it just, sort of blew up into the, you get into the hundreds of millions of views. Um, and that was something that we built together. And then on top of that, I met the D'Amelio's with, uh, my friend, Barbara Jones, and, uh, I've been advising them really since the beginning and wound up writing, co-writing, um, be happy, which Dixie, one of the D'Amelio's just, just went gold. Um, and I didn't set out to do that. Um, proof of concept is, if we're, if we're smart, we're elastic, we're, and we're allowing the market to help drive the business as much as we're driving the business to the market. Got it. So I like it though, because there's no, uh, no necessarily labels to it or any constraints on. Well, I think uh, it's, I mean, it's still like a management business that does marketing and branding initiatives. And we, we've just, it's really fun. I think, the other company that we started was Icons and Giants, which is um, a joint venture with Warner Music Group worldwide. Um, we're using ADA. ADA is typically the plumbing. So you have companies that go to ADA, like a Hitco or a BMG, where they, they're really the primary relationship is to use the distribution capabilities and that footprint. Um, but for us in our conversations there with Cat and with Max Lusada, it's 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 a real it's a real investment in, in developing projects together. So it has a lot more firepower than um, some of the other partnerships there. And then actually the last thing that we did is we've just launched something called Songhouse Live, um, which is an activation of um, uh, eight TikTok-based, social media-based talents that all are living in a house and with recording studios. And it's like, imagine being a teenager and um, and someone coming to you and saying, you're going to live in a house, a mansion with recording studios and collaborators and other creators. And you're going to make music every day, all day for a couple months, get paid for it and then um, build an audience greater and also, you know, have a shot at, at putting out a lot of stuff commercially. And it, and that's something we're working on too. Right. And you had a little experience with that. Didn't you like when they did the, you know, the stuff in Europe, what was that? The castle or whatever, where songwriters would go over and kind of collaborate. I mean, it wasn't a that was no influencer that was house, really, but I mean, that was really the first, but it wasn't an influencer house, but that concept, it was Miles Copeland um, yep. for, you know, your leaders, your leaders, your listeners, um, some of whom are probably leaders um, who Miles um, Copeland was one of Sting's managers. And, um, and uh, he, owned this castle in France and they would have cycles of writers, artists, and songwriters and producers that would go to the castle and stay for a couple of weeks and write songs every day in different studios. It's very similar actually. And everybody would have meals together, very similar. And then you'd walk out with songs that you wrote. And I think the castle would participate in some of it. They would provide some of their writers that they had signed to it. It was a really smart business. And you know, and it was filled with lightweights. And I remember going there and writing me, uh, Carol King, Greg Wells. Uh, you know, so it was, it was like, it was, 
literally it was insane but it went off was that a one-off or was that could you come back i did i did it a couple of times um and it was awesome i mean it's very it's 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 insane and there are a lot of writing camps and these things that go on but i don't think anything will top what that was yeah and with this soundhouse concept are there mentors around or people like yourself are they kind of just on their own to create what they do. Well, I think they're on their own because in part, a lot of them have the altitude and audience that they built themselves. So I don't want to go in and tell someone that something that isn't broken, how to fix it. And at the same time, there's like best practice or ideas or troubleshooting, or just like, you know, when you get stuck on a song uh, and then some of it's just the core writing. So we'll have writers that go in there and it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And let me ask you like, Look, you've had a remarkably successful career as a songwriter. Um, as an artist or even as a songwriter today, I mean, you've, I've seen you where you've spoken about artists being kind of overbooked and kind of having an abundant, abundance of choice. Um, their bandwidth feels like it's been pulled so far out now. Do you think that reflects on their ability to really concentrate on being you know, a great songwriter, a great artist. I mean, you've got social media they have to do, you know, all of us clowns now with our podcasts here, you know, it's, it feels like their attendant, their attention has been broadened so much. What are you seeing in that? It's a really good question. I, it's hard for me to say because on the one hand, the music industry that you and I grew up in is a very different industry. And we can either look back and be nostalgic about this and say, do you remember the days where, you know, you would, an artist would fly into Philadelphia and play in the conference room at WMMR and they'd add the record and then the world opened up for them. And those days just don't exist anymore. So some of it is a little bit of, you know, we want to hold on to the, to that because there's, there's a different romance to that. But what we don't talk about is the fact that it was a, it was the music industry was a collective dictatorship. It was an industry that said, if you want to reach the masses, you go through us or you go nowhere. And I remember when I started out, just the idea of getting a record deal was like, and it still is still part of the whole wizard of Oz myth, but you know, the idea of getting a record deal was to reach the world, to reach outside of your neighborhood or your city, or even the region that you were in. You remember like the heat seekers chart, the heat seekers chart is, is irrelevant now because it's all digital. So yes, do I think that artists are stretched, but I do comparatively speaking, but at the same time, for better or worse, the democratization of distribution, the access for distribution is so vast that in order to be able to cut through, I mean, listen, number one, music still has to be great, even if it's great bubblegum, even if great whatever. But in order to um, maximize that democratized access, you've got to play in all these spaces. You got 80,000 tracks a day, Nick. I mean, if you want to compete, you got to compete. So um, I don't think it's all things. To, this is a long answer, but I don't think it's all things with every artist. I think Adele made just a spectacular quality record. And on that basis, she played by her own rules over time. Um, and then, you know, there's like, there are records that come up. I don't want to say they're artists, but there are records that come up with someone who's big on the digital space. They have a moment and they go away. Um, and I don't think we should expect a lot from them. Right. Okay. That sounds, I, that encapsulates it well for me to understand that. <laughs> I so. mean, I miss it. Listen, I miss it. Uh, I'm on my Instagram. I posted yesterday Today's I posted about my wife is her birthday, but I posted yesterday a clip of Patty Griffin and I playing together at a St. Louis bar and we're playing and I'm talking and all you hear are just people talking. So it's like, I mean, Patty Griffin and I both have done pretty well in our careers. And here's this clip 
of the two of us playing and people are like not interested. And my point on posting that separate from it's kind of fun to watch now is that followers and likes were a lot harder to get when we were out on the road then than it is now. And I think there too is why a lot of the artists, they need to do more because they need to not just, not just get them to, to sign in, but get them to stay. Right. So don't overvalue the uh, power of a like, I mean, no, you should not. I would, you value a comment a lot more than you value a like. Right. And an add on to that in a way is like, look, when you were coming up, you did the hard thing. You said, Hey, I'm out of here. I'm taking my guitar. I'm loading up a car. And uh, I don't know where my future's taking me. I've got no one here to help me. Every dollar I make is my own through my own ingenuity, my own creativity. Um, How's that affected today? Today, it seems like it's become a little bit of a hobby and a little bit of a trust fund kid kind of sport. And have you noticed that change kind of economically? Uh, I mean, yes, yes and no. I think the work ethic and what people put into it and what why they explore music, I think sometimes, I, I think it's changed a little bit. Um, I feel like songwriters are really the greatest entrepreneurs in the music business because we basically are creating an invisible product out of thin air, sometimes with friends, sometimes on our own. And then we have to basically build a little micro business and then we need to market and sell that. And we have a very limited amount of time in a very competitive environment to be able to do it. And not only that, we have to do it at faster than an elevator pitch timeline and in a wildly competitive, completely apathetic environment. And if we're lucky, then we have to let the market decide if it's real. Now, people don't look at songwriting as this entrepreneurial business proposition, but songwriters, I think, undervalue themselves and underestimate what is required, which is why a lot of songwriters need great managers or publishers if you get lucky, but it doesn't take away from the, the courage you need to have in order to go out and do that. And I think because every MacBook has garage band, which is, you know, spectacular technology, even if it's not pro tools or logic, it's still built in. Um, and we could write a song you and I right now, record it on an iPhone and upload it and have it be distributed globally in an instant. I think naturally it's going to have, it's going to erode a little bit of who gets where. And if you're a kid that has a trust fund, you can be a lot more risk-taking and freer than others. And I, by the way, I've been burned by some trust fund kids, you know, where, they like say, I want to do this. And we put in, you know, the elbow grease as a publishing company. And then in the end they go, oh, we, we don't want to do a deal after you've gotten them cuts and done stuff. And I scratch my head and I think, I mean, separate from the, where, where I grew up, that behavior wouldn't be um, <laughs> appreciated. Be some broken knees um, going on. So. I think it's more, yeah, I, I feel like there's an entitlement to the access that we didn't have. Um, I think it's a, it just required a little bit more mm. or I shouldn't say more, a different kind of more. Right. And so you've also kind of been around the branded entertainment world now for almost two decades, I'd say, you know, you sold mm. your first company, right? It was successful. You sold that to EMI. Is that who you sold that to? Yeah. Which I have to get into because of the, you, I think you were there during the terra firma drama. Yeah. I'm just curious, a little curious. So what have you seen kind of in that space? Like what have the changes been like kind of over the last 20 years? I mean, I have to say a couple of things about the terra firma <laughs> chapter because Please do. Um, first off, it was one of the best chapters of my career and I'm, I'm in what I feel is the best chapter. Um, and I've had, I think I've had a few best chapters, but that was awesome. And when I say that it was difficult, completely, um, uh, a shit show in many respects. Um, but what people don't take into consideration when they look at that period of the music business 
is the music business is so, we are so full of ourselves. We're so convinced that we're the center of the universe that what transpired with EMI, which was already in pretty terrible financial shape going into that acquisition is like, we forget it was the worst economic collapse in our lifetime other than the depression. And I don't know if anybody working at record companies was alive during the depression, (laughs) but it was the worst, like not a little bit. It wasn't a correction. It was a, it was a real collapse. And so the fact that other companies either had a parent company that were that had the fortitude and the financial stability to subsidize their survival, to weather that storm. Like Sony is not Sony music on its own, even if the P and L stands alone. And frankly, EMI was just, it was a publicly traded company that went private. So what's interesting to me, and I'm saying this because there are a lot of mistakes that Terra Firma made and Guy Hands made in judgment that I know that, he would raise his hand and so would others and say, I underestimated that, or this was the wrong decision. And, you know, um, and there, there were certainly a host of people that say, Oh, Billy's the wrong guy. You should have never hired him. And frankly, they were probably right. Except I walked away with more hits than anybody during that transition, except for maybe Mike Dungan. And I was an underdog, but the decisions that were made tactically are decisions that while the industry as a whole were, Able, they, the industry was able to understandably use terra firma as a kicking post during these terrible economic times. The things that went on are now things that are industry standard. That's what's interesting, huh? That's, right? so that's the point right there. The, the, the bifurcation of new music revenue and catalog, right? So you can't sign something, have it stiff, but you cover your losses because the greatest hits of whatever big act is going to cover that. So you can't do that. Um, the implementation of data insight and digital, which I think was largely poorly executed until, um, uh, there was a point where they created a digital lab that had a series of segments, audience segmentation, which everybody was like, what is this shit? Which by the way, now the whole, not only does the whole industry use it, but you know, universal music has brilliant executives like Dirk Bauer sitting in Berlin doing all kinds of intelligence, uh, digital analytic work around music. So that everybody said is crazy. Um, but they're all doing that. How about private equity being involved in music? Right. Well, right. And so, and (laughs) And the belief that digital is the, is the future. And the first company that actually invested in Spotify was EMI. And it was Stefan Blum and myself. And Stefan, of course, went on to become the COO of Spotify. So there were a lot of things during that era that were super imperfect. But for me, I got an incredible education and I had a lot of hits um, despite the turbulence and um and I met incredible people and it took it, the whole industry went through it. I mean, that started. And in the first year was the iPhone. Right. So <laughs> I can't blame everything on, on terra firma. And I don't think anybody else can either. Yeah. It was just, it was definitely a pile on at that uh, moment oh, yeah, in but time. It, so. But why shouldn't it be? Well, why shouldn't it be? Yeah, I suppose. What was your like, <laughs> coming from like where you came from songwriter, like I'm an entrepreneur. Now I'm doing brand entertainment work. Now I'm on the executive side. I'm sitting at a, the other side of the table. Kind of what, what was kind of most striking to you about having that job? Was there a new respect found for it? Uh, clearly, I think um, what surprised uh, you the most? <laughs> I mean, I actually found it. Um, interesting that the executives that we as artists always look to, to be there with all the answers that the executives don't have the answers. And it's not that we don't know that because anybody can look at it and say, you know, if the executives had all the answers, why would there be so much turnover or churn or, or why would they be there working for a larger company? Because if they had the answers, they'd be entrepreneurs and doing it themselves. So I think 
what I got to understand and hopefully acquire is that a lot of the skill sets that go into being a great executive is not that I've got golden ears bullshit because that's not what it is. What it is, is the ability to delegate and motivate people and to listen to the river better. And the industry in the past, which is, was a push business. Like here's Nick Terzo's new band. We're going to really push it. Remember that this was what we looked at. And today it's a pull business more than ever. It's like, you see something that has an audience and the audience is pulling. So what you, instead of pushing, you're actually letting the, it's, I mean, this is a bad analogy, but sort of the fishing rod when you're trying to catch the fish and it bites, you actually need to let it roll for a minute. And and, and learn more and then take in that information and assess how you harness that and reel in what you need to get done for the company and the artists and everything else. And I, I feel like those are skills that I undervalued. I really thought it was just like somebody who, um, had a healthy ego and which is, I think is also required because you're going to take a lot of shots. And when you have an opinion that people don't like, you got to, you know, all of a sudden some artist or their manager hates you because you don't like what they do. I mean, that's, that can be hard, but I have such a respect for the executives, the ones that really know how to balance that well. And, um, and I don't think I had an appreciation for it until I was in that place. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of curious. Since I was in that place, I was curious what a, a songwriter and a creative person going into it, how it was, it was perceived. Weird. It was definitely weird, but I, I think the part that I liked the most is that I wasn't afraid to be wrong because I'm going to be wrong a lot, but I wasn't afraid to be accountable because I can't be fired. I mean, one of the interesting things I can't be fired from being a, a talented songwriter. I can, my ideas can get uh, dusty and irrelevant, but if someone fired me, it's not like, Oh, I'm out of work forever, or I got to go look for my next gig. And that's, that's a privilege that I had that a lot of executives don't have. So, which leads to why there's so much politicking, you know, right. I just didn't, I was, I don't know, untethered. And I, somehow I managed to make my way through it. That's awesome. So into songwriting we go again. And, you know, I do want to, I saw the pink documentary on uh, Netflix, mm. um, you know, and I've know for years kind of following her, you know, how vectored she is, how dedicated she is, but man, that really brought it home, man. It was like, holy cow, how is she juggling all this? Um, Tell me a little about, about your relationship. Cause I mean, it's been an ongoing relationship. It wasn't like you wrote one song and, that was the end of it. You guys have been together writing for what? 10 years, 12 20 years? years, 20 years. Holy cow. Yeah. It's just very unusual. And every time she goes to make a record, I always say to her, you know, I get it. Like you need to work with the sexiest, coolest, hippest, whatever in the moment. And I wouldn't, there'll come a point where she'll be like, yeah, no, I'm going to work with this crew now. Um, and every year that she goes to make a record, she, uh, thankfully she stills like, let's go in and see what we got. And I, I, I think, um, she's also given me the room to explore my own weird journey. Um, and I'm not cool. I've never been cool, Nick. So, that means like, I'm not going to like, there are a lot of collaborators that she works with and they're, they're all amazing and they're all a lot cooler, um, a lot cooler than I am. And I think what makes her special is her not caring about that stuff. And I think if she did, if there was a moment where she cared is the moment that she won't make a record that sells that she won't connect with people because her not caring is part of the magic of who she is as an artist and as a person. And what she did in the documentary was illustrate the imperfection of trying to do everything, which is really hard. It's hard for any mom or parent who's in any job, let alone the idea that 
um, you live this rock star life. And in the middle of an interview, you've got like basically your baby's duty on your hands. You're changing a diaper and you're trying to be rational. And you know, it's, she's, she's unusual. Hmm. What is the bond between you two though? What do you think you guys share? I mean, I I think that it's a sibling style relationship. Like we are, it's not, we don't like, we're not on the phone every day. It's not like, it's not like that. It's not a frenetic thing. It's like a very, I, I love her. Um, I love who she has become as a person. And I enjoy just, I enjoy seeing her success, but not just like the stadium moments are great. Like I wrote this song with her called I am here, which is really a big moment in the documentary. And you, for any songwriter, if you, if you write a song or produce a record and you, you see Wembley stadium freaking out, singing along to something that, you created out of thin air, the entrepreneurs that we are as songwriters, it's like, it's insane. And anytime I see her or any of the artists I've written for playing in any venue and you see people singing and taking part in that creation is like, a, it's nuts. Um, but I think what I, I hope the world realizes with Alicia is that she's, who she is on the stage and who she is in the record she makes. It's not a far bridge to cross to who she is as just a person who's just trying to be a wife and a partner and a mom and a sister and a friend. And that's the part about the documentary that I, I love the most watching because I'd seen it. I've seen it for years, like, but it was just amazing that she made the effort to share that with people. Um, I think our bond is based on the Philadelphia background that we both have. We both grew up. We're kind of tell it like it is folks. Um, I, I once punched a paparazzi in the face in Stockholm, carrying her out of a bar. I've never (laughs) spoken of that. I don't think you should use that as a highlight. Um, You know, we to get out of the country safely. Uh, yeah, we did. I definitely worried because you know it was it wasn't the only camera there, but you know, but she she's and by the way, uh I think she would have punched I would say she probably would have done it, right? <laughs> she would have done it if I didn't. And I don't I think we we I I think that I let me say this about her because I, I really love bragging about her. Um I don't know why I've gotten to have such a great relationship with someone for so long. Um, but I think she, she's taught me an enormous amount about songwriting and about creative courage. And, um, and hopefully I've managed to create a safe environment for her to try shit and, and, and not fail. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a special it's a very special friendship. It's incredible. I mean, I thought I knew a little bit about all of her qualities, but in watching that, it just, I learned so much more, you know, yeah. the tug on her, the, the unassuming way she is considering she had to go and perform in front of 70, 80,000 people. Uh, it's just, wow. Yeah, no, she's, <sighs> she's, she's the best kept not secret global <laughs> star on earth. I think that's the truth. Yeah. I think that's the truth. And her fans definitely demonstrate it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So um, look with songwriting right now, I mean, with all these different platforms, I mean, you have a definitely a forward thinking view of things. Um, you know, there's a new songwriting organization, the pact here, right? Where they're trying I, I to, signed it. Did you sign to that? I hundred percent did. Which is, well, I'm going to let you explain it because you're signed it. So. Well, no, it's, it's basically, look, right now, the paradigm needs to shift and there needs to be greater fairness for songwriters. And that's not, to anybody listening to this, this is not greater for songwriters because 
um, songwriters are victims or we're feeling sorry for ourselves. Literally just the balance, the economic balance is completely off, off balance in, in, in profound ways. And it's one of the reasons why I think what Merck is doing with hypnosis is of particular value to songwriters because he will not have the conflict that the major companies have. So just to explain, if you have Universal Music Group, the biggest, most powerful company in the world, and they have their record companies, all amazing record companies, Capital, Interscope, Republic, et cetera, and they know that on the records, the record company master owner gets 70% of the revenue and the songwriter, let's say the songwriter gets 2% or 5%. I'm just making up a number, but real, real imbalance. Let's say 30%. And it's not, but let's say that. If the songwriters are pissed off because they're not getting their share, the record companies are going to advocate hard to keep their share. And the publishing companies are going to advocate hard to increase their share. But what happens when it's the same company? Right. So basically, Universal has a left pocket of their pants and a, and a right pocket of their pants. And the right pocket is like, we deserve more than we have. And the left pocket is like, yeah, no, you don't. And really, the person that wears the pants, they get all the money anyway. So they're not really incentivized to re- rebalance that in the way that they should. And the PACT and um, SONA um, in LA, these are statements and organizations that are trying to create greater parity for songwriters. So, um, And one of the challenges is, is that years ago, um, major artists who are not songwriters would go to working songwriters and say, okay, if you want me to cut your song, I'm now a writer on the song and you need to give me X percent. And if you don't do it, I won't do your song, which by the way, if you're a songwriter, that's, that's the only way you make a living. You're not selling concert tickets. You're not selling t-shirts. All you're doing is you are writing these songs and that's the lifeblood of your career. So I'm married for 20 years. I have four kids. If I want to feed my kids and a big artist would turn to me and say, I'll cut your song, but I'm a writer on the song or you don't get a cut, then I got to, what am I going to do? I'm stuck. So what are they doing? They're, they're strong arming songwriters. And this has been going on for a long time. And what the pact is doing is it's saying a bunch of, established songwriters are saying, if you don't contribute meaningfully to the creation of the song, we're not giving you a piece of it. That should not be controversial, Nick. That should be uh, any given Tuesday or day of the week. So first of all, how ridiculous is that a bunch of us had to get together and sign a letter that says, basically, don't strong arm us into giving you equity in something you didn't create. And without naming names, just this week, I wrote on a record with some big artists and one of the big artists through another person said, Oh, we need to have a piece of it. And I said, I signed the pact. The answer is no. And everybody was freaking out, but you know what? It's going to happen because great songs are going to get their, their, their day and artists are going to need to rethink things. And I will, in going back to the castle, um, I saw Carol King was the first writer and a, Granted, it's Carol King, but the first writer that I saw that stood up and said, I'm not giving anybody a piece that they didn't write, but she's Carol King. But the rest of the writers who were unknown were like, oh, just give a little piece. Like, I don't care. Cause I just want the cut. And then, right. and, and then, and eventually they got the cut and Carol King got the cut, but she's Carol. But if you're not Carol King, you're going to get pushed around. And I can tell you, I worked with a lot of artists and got a lot of cuts and I can't say that all of the artists that I worked with actually did the writing. Right. But I, I had kids and a family and I did it. So I'm grateful that I can say no. Right. And I'd imagine that that pressure wasn't only the artists too, because, you know, oh, look, no, if, it was the if I was, if I wasn't an ethically an R guy in the nineties, I'm sure I could have gotten some writing credits, right. Which oh, I, I have I, zero of. So, I mean, I don't want to name names, but there's one, there's one A&R person who's since passed away that I remember, I know 
songwriters would come in with bags of cash and get cuts on records. Um, and uh, you probably know the person too. Probably. <laughs> so, no, I understand. But I mean, what you've got going on here and the PAX one part of this, right? I mean, but right. I mean, this is an ongoing, I mean, you, you guys are going to have to, you know, even with the music modernization act, I mean, it's a well, long way to go here, man. That's right. Yeah. And, and, but the, again, I go back to what hypnosis is doing and I think Merck is trying to get enough leverage with enough power and the catalog is also concentrated that I think he will be able to make a, a compelling case in a different way for writers and publishers, because he's not owned by one of the major record companies that doesn't have the incentive to care because it's both pockets on one pair of pants. Right. I can see that. I think his challenge the only challenge he'll have is, you know, I think he's got a lot of fractional ownership, which just puts you in a tougher position to some degree. Right. Um, I think yes and no, because even fractional, fractional ownership, you're incentivized to maximize the life and breathe new revenue into um, existing catalog. And I think rights holders, songwriters, frankly, estates, they want to generate revenue, not just for themselves, but they want to continue relevance for the work that they that exists in their catalogs. So even shared equity in something still it's still equity. You can still approve or not approve of a license. You still have a leverage point. Okay. I'll accept that. So let me ask you before we kind of head out here, I have two more questions for you. Anything. Um, man. I told you I'm, I'm one I'm is, um, you know, you have a real work ethic. Um, you've never stopped. Um, I was just curious, what are your like rituals around in your practices you know, around creativity and songwriting, you know, what's been most successful for you? Um, I'd say to songwriters, I would tell songwriters to read a lot. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not practicing what I preach as much this year because of the pandemic. Um, but uh, I feel like the more creative input you can get, the better the and more qualitative, the creative output. Um, uh, what artists write about and songwriters write about is life experience. And if you can, if you can add to your personal life experience, the stories and the delicacies and the vocabulary and whatever of other people into that bank that you draw from when you, when you go to create, I think that's always good. Um, I, I would say, I would just tell anybody that the best ritual is to tell the truth. Even if you don't want to say your whole intimate truth out loud, you can, you can draw from your life experience and use it as a therapeutic vehicle to say real things, true things. And I think that's where the best music and, and, and songs are born from that place. We just um, signed an artist named black Bach, um, which is B L K B O K. And uh, he's a, an amazing pianist, classical pianist, but he's also his career is built being the MD and playing keyboards for Rihanna, Demi Lovato, John Mayer, Justin Timberlake uh, is an amazing guy. And during pandemic, he created this classical album, the neoclassical piano album um, called black book. And it's in, it's an incredible body of work. That's really an articulation. He's like, I'm a rapper with my fingers. Like he really created classical works of art that were mere reflections of how he experienced the pandemic, black lives matter, George Floyd, the election, um, a personal loss. And it's just like, it's amazing. This album, I would tell anybody to stream it. Be okay. Be okay. Drawing from your own life is the most powerful tool you can, you can, you can use as a songwriter. That's my, that's be my advice to anybody. I'll take that. So, and I can't have you leave without uh, talking about kind of the incredible work you've done um, around autism and autism research mm -hmm. and as an advocate and as a father and, um, 
I, I don't know, man. You, you, I, I don't know what to say to you. I mean, your work there has been just astounding. Uh, um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's, it's, it's important to me. My kids are important to me. I think the autism community is really complicated, really complex. It is a spectrum for a reason. There's no, no two individuals with an autism diagnosis are the same. There's like nothing uniform about it. And, um, which means there's a, an incredible community of gifted individuals, activists, um, voices, perspectives. And at the same time, it's such a broad spectrum that it's hard to wrap your arms around it. I can only speak from my experience as a dad and, um, and say that, uh, one in six kids have developmental challenges, autism, notwithstanding. Um, and a lot of what I've found is that, uh, having a child with a disability is a superpower. It's made me a much better person, a, a much better executive, a better songwriter, a better husband. And I think of just a better, more aware person. Um, and I think that, uh, and it's also, it's, it can be a lonely experience for a lot of folks in the music industry that I know who have both people in the music industry who are on the spectrum and people who are parents and siblings of those on the spectrum. So I just feel like, um, I want to do my share and in serving the community. And I um, probably the thing that I'm most proud of is how many music people have supported me and, and, um, the work that I've gotten to do. And it's also, um, uh, what I'll tell you is of anything I've ever accomplished in my career. And I got, I'm grateful to have a lot of metal on the wall, but I would say standing in the oval office with my son and my wife and, um, and having president Obama hand the first pen uh, of a law that I worked really hard with a bunch of people and organizations to get passed for autism funding I don't, I actually, I don't think I'll ever, I'll ever be able to top that. And for my son who was there, who's not verbal, um, I just hope that when we walked out of the Oval Office, that the, I think that the, the residual royalty of that is the knowledge that like, as parents, my wife and I will go to any length possible to, to fight for the community. That's awesome. That was HR 2005, right? 2005. Yeah. Has there been, has there new legislation? Is there any more funding on the funding front? What's going on? Well, what's interesting is there's one of the cool things that happened is that the autism research funding, because it's research implies cure and cure is controversial. So, and I don't want to, I think cure is a, I think it's, I think it's an unfair word. Um, and I don't think it's applicable here. I think the research is about improving the lives of people on the spectrum. Should they choose to want to have alternatives that help make maybe certain things easier um, and have uh, medical breakthroughs that, um, that don't um, stop a human being with autism from being who they are, but help make it an easier path to be who they are. Um, so that's important for me to articulate from my perspective. Um, and this may bore the hell out of your listeners, but, uh, I don't but think I, so, but I do think that, um, what was discovered is that there's real correlations in terms of Alzheimer's and other neurological, um, disorders. And there's a lot of overlap in terms of research. And, and so I think the consolidation of some of that funding and know-how is, is a positive thing. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting for me to see how that unfolds because there's, there's still a lot of dysfunction in any government funding for anything. Um, but what I do know is that autism, whereas when my son was diagnosed was not really a front 
and center thing that people spoke about and he's going to be 19. Um, now it's a much more um, open discussion. And I, I'm grateful that we could play a small role in that. And frankly, a lot of music people played a, a role in helping me do that. So, um, and now of course that leads to, it's not like autism is like a childhood thing and then it goes away. It's a lifelong thing. So you have massive unemployment um, of adults with autism who are awesome and can work and do things and be frankly, incredible employees, but you still have a 70 plus percent unemployment rate too. So there's a lot, look, there's a lot to do and there's a lot of causes. And I know this isn't the only one, but, um, you know, this is the one that knocked on our door and, uh, that that's what it is. Well, there was a reason and you uh, responded. So um, it's good. I, I think Jenna, my wife and I, we're pretty, look, we know we're privileged the position we're in and we still have to advocate for our kids, go with lawyers against school districts. And we live in, you know, when he was diagnosed, we lived in Park Avenue. So I didn't grow up there, but even there, we still had to fight hard to advocate and we still have to do it. So if we have to do it, I, part of what motivates us is just thinking of what any average person just trying to pay rent who has kids, what they have to go through. And it is not easy. No, no, I see that. I mean, it's gotta be incredible for people that are kind of on the cusp financially. Yeah. A hundred percent. Cool. Well, thank you. Listen, thank you for sharing that. I know it's personal and, no, uh, I'm, I'm, but it's so I'm important now. And I have so many friends that have, you know, uh, uh, a child, a brother, sister. Yeah. Um, it's very common now. Uh, and I don't know if that's due to testing or if that's just due to a well, broader, whatever, it's, whatever, whatever it's it is. Due to, it's the, the, when my son was diagnosed, it was one in 166 and now it's one in 38. Holy cow. So maybe some of it's testing. Maybe I, I don't think I'll, what I'll say is I don't think it actually, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but I think what we know is that it's there and there's a whole diverse community of voices that wants to be heard and we got to figure it out. Right on. So right on. So, well, thank you very much for doing this. I'm really grateful. Uh, um, thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing what comes from Billy Mann in the future here. Yeah, so. me too. All right, my friend, stay healthy. Thank you, Nick. Speak to you soon. All right. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.